kids' boundaries and staying safe at school, when are they ever going to learn it? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I really get concerned with, you know, hearing some of these policies where they're saying, okay, put all media away in a lockbox. And then at the end of the day, here you go. <laughs> Good luck. Have fun. Right. <laughs> I mean, yeah. is that really, you know, when the reality is that we're all carrying these devices around in our pockets? Welcome to How to Have Kids Love Learning, where we explore ideas and strategies for parents and educators that help students thrive. I'm your host, Ed Madison. I'm a professor and researcher at the University of Oregon and serve as executive director of the Journalistic Learning Initiative, a nonprofit organization that empowers middle and high school students to discover their voice, improve academic outcomes, and become self-directed learners through project-based storytelling. Teaching students to become effective communicators is at the heart of JLI's work. Today we're talking with William Kist, um, an education professor emeritus at Kent State University. He's an education consultant and a former high school English teacher. For over 20 years, he's worked with schools and school districts uh, on a national level with a focus on integrating technology in the classroom. He's also the author of five books, including his latest, Curating a Literacy Life, which gives teachers and parents resources to help their students make sense of their media landscape uh, and allow them to pursue their own interests. Welcome, Bill. Thank you. <laughs> well, thanks for having me, Ed. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I want to, um, you know, just uh, before we get right into the book, talk a little bit about your background as an English teacher and, and how you came to focus on technology integration. Was that something you were always interested in or? Absolutely. I, I really came at this because I saw that it worked with my students in Akron, Ohio. I taught in the Akron public schools. And I think because I was interested in the movies, television, music. Um, in fact, I kind of debated becoming a, a music director uh, or a music teacher, but I play the piano and there aren't any pianos in the marching band. So, <laughs> um, but I love to read and write. And so I became an English teacher and brought all this into my classroom. I even had a piano in my classroom that nobody was using. And so when I was doing Shakespeare or the classics, I would bring in movies. I would even, uh, I've written a lot about this, bring in silent films, like little 20 minute two reelers. And I just noticed the kids were really engaged. It allowed us to talk about plot and characterization and all sorts of other elements of storytelling. So this happened to be about the time that the Internet came in and uh, everybody was going, you know, obviously crazy trying to figure out how to integrate this new way of reading and writing. And I feel like I already kind of had a a head start on everyone, but I came at this really from an arts, more of an arts background uh, than a technology ed ed tech background. So that's a, that's a brief synopsis. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so with, with the book, can you talk about um, just, you know, how your work as an instructional coach 
inform the book and 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 given sort of the the transition from being a in classroom teacher to a professor kind of maybe how your your research has helped you kind of even you know get more in depth around all this work sure yeah well um you know fast forward about you know 25 years and i had gone into academia and of course you need to have a research interest in academia as you well know and this was a natural i i feel like i really lucked out because it became such a fertile um line of research for me because you know i think to this day we're still really not sure by we i mean english teachers uh any teacher that teaches literacy i think there's still a lot of struggles today uh almost more so than there was 25 years ago um so my research agenda if you will uh over the last 20 years has been to study teachers who are um embracing new media um not not you know, pushing it away, but actually embracing it. And a few years ago, I was fortunate uh, to be discovered by uh, a company called in, uh, Institute for Student Achievement. It's a national company. And they said, they asked me if I'd be interested in doing some instructional coaching at a high school in Cleveland. They had a contract there and they needed some coaches to come in and help the English teachers there just you know, improve their instruction. So I started there in the fall of 2018. Uh, I was still, you know, a professor at Kent State, so that was my day job. This was just kind of an extra um, consulting job I was doing. And I still remember, I write about this in in my book, Curating a Literacy Life. Uh I still remember the day I was in Shannon Davis's classroom, 10th grade English class. She was reading The Hate You Give with the kids. And she said, okay, I want everybody to take out your cell phone. And that comment really blew my mind and is responsible for the book being in existence. So just, you know, the, the thumbnail sketch is that she was a teacher that embraced the cell phone, didn't, you know, make the kids put it in a lockbox. And so we were off and running. We were, you know, we just uh, started talking every week. There was a group of teachers in the building that we, we talked, uh, we had a con, they had a common planning period. So I would sit down with them and it was just amazing the work that they were doing that I felt maybe needed to reach a broader audience. Mm -hmm. And as I read, um, you know, some of the students were searching for like, you know, Serena Williams and, you know, and athletes and, and sort of tying it into uh, contemporary or date, you know, their, their life experiences, which I think makes uh, learning more salient for, for students, you know, um, uh, so much of, you know, teaching literature is, is set either in a period or, and it's sometimes hard and difficult for young people to kind of, you know, make the connection to how, to how it's relevant in their, in their daily lives. Is that kind of what you found? Um, well, absolutely, Ed. I mean, and, you know, I mean, this is not rocket science. I mean, right. I mean, 
this is stuff we've known about teaching and learning for decades. I mean, you could go back to centuries with, uh, you know, uh, Rousseau's Emile. I mean, there have always been educators who have tried to um, connect, uh, scaffold, if you will, uh, what is being taught to the students' daily lives. It just so happens that now most of the students are carrying around in their pockets um, a way to make that connection even more uh, present. And I don't want to, my book is not only about cell phones. It's really about uh, screens in general and how we are all reading and writing. You know, you could make an argument that we're reading and writing more words a day um, than we have in the past. Unfortunately, we don't really have research, you know, that that we can really document how mm-hmm. many words a day somebody in 1850 read. Um, but uh, we do know that there are some teenagers now, the Pew Internet Research uh, Group, you know, has documented there are some kids that are sending a hundred texts per day. Mm-hmm. And that's writing. I mean, they're reading and writing. And I, I feel like the teachers at Glenville, which was the school where I was in Cleveland, they were making they were making use of that and making the phone, you know, and the other screens relevant to the hate you not only the hate you give, but they did uh, things fall apart. They did Macbeth. Um and the phone wasn't an enemy. Yeah. So you, you, you uh, have a, a curation model that has four steps, collecting, organizing, repurposing, reflecting. Can you kind of distill some of how that? Yeah, I'd be glad to. Um, the, the curation model is really just kind of a convenient organizer for teachers and parents. Uh, there is a section of the book that um, at the end, that kind of reaches out to parents. I'm a parent of young children now, and I see how they kind of go through these steps. Uh, obviously, the first step collecting is just that. Um, how do you help kids take pictures, write notes, make movies, make art on their phones or on their tablets? Then the second step is organizing. How do you help them organize that? And I, when I do presentations to teachers, I kind of challenge them about how have they taken time to organize the photos on their own phones? And a lot of times I see some shaking of heads um, that, uh, you know, that's something that they could use help with, too. So just how to organizing it, how to organize it using some whether you're using the school's LMS, learning management system, or whether you're using just a Google folder, you know, helping kids um, organize what they have collected and ultimately decide how much of it to keep and what to discard. Um, And then the uh, repurposing is what you're asking them to produce. There needs to be an exhibition, maybe, of what they've collected, a, a, re, a, a re-blending, a remixing, if you will, of what they've collected into something new, whether it's a, a little uh, museum exhibit, 
whether it's a, a new video, um, uh, whether it's something, an essay uh, that's written. Uh, and then uh, finally, the last step is reflecting, you know, just going back and thinking, you know, um, is this really what I'm interested in? My own son it has been a, a big um uh, motivation in getting me to write this book. He's 10 and he got into collecting trains because I have an old Lionel train set. Yeah. yeah. And so we went to a couple train store uh, shows like for collectors and we, and we noticed, and he noticed that he really wasn't all that interested in setting up trains to go around and around circle, what he was really interested in is dioramas and finding little fake buildings and fake trees. And, and so he reflected on his collecting and it kind of shifted gears. uh, So that next time he went to one of these shows, he was um, kind of going in a different direction. So that kind of summarizes the four Mm -hmm. steps. You know, I think anytime there's a new technology, there's also fears and concerns. I mean, we've just seen recently that Seattle um, public schools uh, are suing, uh, you know, high tech companies, um, mostly around social media and concerns about, you know, just mental health and bullying and body negative body image and all of that. How do you uh, help teachers, particularly new teachers um, who um, just uh, are new to classroom management, you know, and, and if every kid has an individual device, how do you keep them on task and not have them going to inappropriate sites and all kinds of things like that? Well, that's the big question. And I mean, it's, it's why I said, you know, a few minutes ago that I think if anything, it's more challenging now than when I started in this uh, line of research. I get it. I get the concern. I'm a parent. Um, I put limits on my own children. Uh, and their how they access uh, social media. I I would say to the new teacher, and, and of course I work with pre-service teachers all the time. I'm still doing a little bit of adjuncting. Uh, I think number one, y- you want to follow the school's rules. So if the school does have a no cell phone policy, then you've got to follow that. Um, but. Uh, I do believe that if you set boundaries with kids, I do believe, and, and I work in all sorts of different types of districts, I believe they will follow that. If you say, you know, let's put the phones away, we're going to do something that is not on your phone, or we need your direction, we need your attention to be directed toward the front of the room or the side of the room or whatever, uh, my experience has been that that is respected. I, I think a lot of times what I see in classrooms is that maybe teachers aren't really maybe demanding it or expecting it or making them realize, hey, there's two choices here. Either we can put your cell phone in a lockbox and never use it, um, or you can respect some boundaries. Here's the thing though, Ed, it's never going to be perfect. I know that there are always going to be kids that, that do disrespect uh, the teacher and maybe go against it. But here's the thing. If we don't teach the kids 
boundaries and staying safe at school, when are they ever going to learn it? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I really get concerned with, you know, hearing some of these policies where they're saying, okay, put all media away in a lockbox. And then at the end of the day, here you go. <laughs> Good luck. Have fun. Right. <laughs> I mean, right. is that really, you know, when the reality is that we're all carrying these devices around in our pockets? Mm-hmm. Uh, we I, all are. So I got to I got to ask you about um, just even just instruction practices, because, you know, through the worst of covid, um, you know, everything went went online. Um, and, uh, there, at least there's a, there's a whole buzz about learning loss and, and, you know, is this going to be a generation of kids that are, you know, lagging behind peers and and things like that. And I'm just curious what you, what your thoughts about that. There've also been in some States an effort to try to almost, um, make it all on online and, and, and for financial reasons, because, you know, if you have kids staring at computers, you know, you don't have as many teachers to employ and administrators and everything else. And I don't know, I don't, it's sort of the question about that human, the, the human touch. And then I'll ask you about AI later, but, but, but about the human touch in teaching. Well, I tried not to be a, Debbie Downer. Um, <laughs> but I, I am concerned about what you're saying about the learning loss, because I actually think we learned a lot of good things about teaching and learning during the pandemic. And what concerns me is what you're saying about the, quote, human touch, unquote, making us almost revert to instructional practices that we know are counterproductive for kids and particularly for marginalized kids, Mm -hmm. you know, just having the kids, okay, let's open the book to chapter five and we're going to do round robin reading for 45 minutes is not going to cut it, Ed. Mm -hmm. And yes, they're physically in the room with each other there. They could physically touch each other. There is that, I guess, human element but is that really best practice? You know, meanwhile, the cell phone is in a box uh, while they're, you know, falling asleep and uh, doing round robin reading. Um, I am encouraged by the fact that I see many more teachers putting stuff online than before the pandemic. So, you know, before the pandemic, maybe they had never tried Google Classroom. They'd, they'd never tried Zoom. That's another amazing thing. Yeah. Yeah. But now uh, I do think there is some progress there. Uh, it just really concerns me. And I think I'll just say one more thing and then I'll shut up. We have <laughs> defined learning very narrowly. And I actually listened to one of your podcasts the other day with a, a woman. I'm trying to think she had a book out um, where she was talking about just how narrowly we define learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, basically the way we define learning now is we make the kids read a very brief uh, couple of paragraphs from some text that they know nothing about and care nothing about. Mm-hmm. 
and that may may very well be completely culturally irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we expect them to answer multiple choice questions, and we say, "Okay, if you can't do that, then you're you haven't learned." Mm. And I just think, you know what? I have never been asked to do anything like that right. on each job <laughs> or in life. I mean, it's completely, complete. So I wish that people were spending more time talking about the standardized testing movement, Ed, because that is what we really should be looking at, even in terms of costing our kids' mental health. Yeah. I got to ask your 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 take on um, just AI. Uh, there's this uh, site, uh, Chat GPT, uh, where you know you can say, "I need an essay on whatever," and it's pretty, you know, compelling. I mean, to to sort of see the quality of it, and there's a big debate going on about you know uh, how appropriate is this, and is it cheating, and you know. Um, what are your thoughts? Well, of course, we we want to, you know, certainly avoid having kids plagiarize. I'm not an expert on the technology of this, but my understanding is that uh, there are several firms that are racing to get AI detectors. I think even Turnitin, which is the famous uh, plagiarizing um, detector that is, has been used now for years, mm-hmm. is racing to discover that. But you know what, Ed? <laughs> when you look at the assignments that so many <laughs> teachers are making, first of all, they're not even asking the kids to write anything. Secondly, uh, it's I think there's been so much plagiarizing going on for years anyway. Uh, certainly in my field of English language arts, you know, so many of the stu- so-called study guides, you know, so the, ki- the teacher's teaching to kill a mockingbird and the teacher passes out a big, thick study guide. Well, almost all those questions can be answered just by using SparkNotes or CliffsNotes.com. Right. Yeah. But nobody seems to be outraged by that on, a le- you know, on the level that they are by AI. I, I think it'll probably work it work its way out that um, we won't have to worry about it. But I mean, of course I'm troubled by it and, and, you know, I don't want kids to plagiarize, but I think, I do think there are other more important things we should be worried about. Mm-hmm. Final question is really from a aspect of being a parent and, and, you know, maybe some advice for parents about how they can supplement what's happening in the classroom. Um, uh, or reinforce uh, some of the things that you're talking about in your book? Well, I, when I do um, presentations with teachers, I try, and it's the same with parents. I had a teacher tell me within the last year that she has never seen a Star Wars movie, ever, any of them. And she's a high school English teacher. I would just challenge parents to reach out to their kids and have a conversation about the pop culture that they enjoy. Uh, I remember I, I watched um, 
Well, the Grammys were just on uh, the other night. I watched the Grammys. I made a point of watching the Grammys. I enjoyed a lot of it. And um, I was talking to a high school kid recently about different artists. And I mentioned that I had heard music by the artist known as SZA. <laughs> right. And uh, she spells her name S-Z-A, but she pronounces it SZA. Right. You would have thought that I had said that I was could fly or something. I mean, this kid practically falled off the chair. He said, you know SZA? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I've heard her music and I think she's really good. <laughs> well, I would just challenge parents. You know what? Listen to some of some of the new music. And you know what? You'd be surprised how many kids are listening to the Beatles and right. to Motown yeah. and to old school, you know, rap and hip hop. I mean, they're listening to a lot of our music. So give their, their music a chance. Yeah. Well, Bill, this has been great. Uh, where can uh, people find um, your you on the internet or social media, um, certainly your books on Amazon and other places. Yeah, I mean, I would really encourage that this current book that I have out now, Curating a Literacy Life, it really is a nice summary of, uh, of really the work that I've been doing for years. So it is available on Amazon, Curating a Literacy Life. And I am on Twitter uh, at William Kist, just all one word, at William Kist. I encourage uh, to people to follow me and I'd love to have a conversation with you. Awesome. Great. Thank you. How to Have Kids Love Learning is produced by the Journalistic Learning Initiative. For more information about our work, please visit journalisticlearning.com.